0: Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 70. And uh, we're continuing on with uh, Reproduction Furniture. This is Part 5. And uh, we're going to term this Shaping the Public's Taste. At the Paris World Exposition of 1900, seven years after the Columbian Exposition, The main theme of the American Pavilion was America revealing her power and resources. There, a vast mural depicted the spirit of America lifting her veil. She was flanked on one side by a symbolic figuring representing steam, the force of the past, and on the other, a figure representing electricity, the force of the future. The same symbolism was also appropriate to the furniture industry at the dawn of the new century. The 20 years between 1894 and 1914 were wonderful years in the history of American reproduction furniture. Innovative technology was in place. Natural resources were still plentiful then. Craftsmen proudly applied their old world skills to factory-made pieces to give that special touch. Money was made and spent. The climate of the times made it possible for the romance of bygone years to coexist with the exuberance of the new era. By the time, was also right for new mentors of taste to arrive upon the American scene. Something new, interior decorators, as they called themselves then. The title, Interior Designer, came a bit later in Europe royal taste had always led the way in the United States 18th and early 19th century craftsmen mostly followed the style and design books written in England and to some degree even in Europe through the though the craftsmen enjoyed, craftsmen adapted these foreign concepts to american taste these men were furniture makers not interior decorators or designers Sometimes upholsters and furniture makers gave their clients advice about their wares, but they did not coordinate and arrange entire rooms as a profession. In other words, in those days, there were no populist American decorators or arbiters of taste as we know them today to guide the American public in decorating their homes. Numerous American household guidebooks were written in the in the 1850s but these were mostly instructional treatises rather than got guides on coordinating fashion and colors. Among the most popular ones was The Carolina Housewife, written around mid-century, and The American Woman's Home, written in the 1860s by Caroline Beecher and her better-known sister Harriet Beecher Stowe. A book already often mentioned in these pages Clarence Cook's 1878, The House Beautiful, A Collection of Essays on Beds and Tables, Stools and Candlesticks, that was originally published in Scribner's Monthly, had untold influence in home furnishings and broke the ground for a plethora of decorating books that would follow. But it wasn't until the 1890s that the professional interior decorator emerged who would sculpt a room by selecting the properly arranged furniture, upholstery, and accessories. The first proclaimed American interior decorator was a woman, Elise Wolfe, <coughs> a flamboyant actress with sophisticated taste and skill who worked for wealthy clients. DeWolf also believed that when the lower class was exposed to fine objects in upper-class surroundings, the influence would have a trickle-down effect. In her 1913 book, The House in Good Taste, DeWolf wrote, I know of nothing more significant than the awakening of men and women throughout our country to the desire to improve their homes and living spaces. Call it what you will, awakening, development, American renaissance. It is the most startling and promising condition of affairs. DeWolf quickly became noted for her decorating a public as well as private homes. Her cheerful use of color and chintz, she became known as the chintz lady, in fact, and her practical approach to making home life just a bit more attractive and appealing. Despite all the positive statements that can be made about the trends of this time, there was one shortcoming in the furniture industry, a dearth of new designs. Elise DeWolf identified this deficiency when she bemoaned, we cannot do better than to accept the standards of other times and adapt them to our own uses now. We have not succeeded in creating a style adapted to our modern life. Then she identified a very significant reason why the classical styles were in such favor. Our life, with its haste, its nervousness, and its preoccupations, does not inspire the furniture makers at all today. And we can only surely add that the new pace of life made reminders of an earlier, slower, much more comforting time. That's why nothing or no styles become new. Remember, up until the 1870s, there were always new styles coming in fashion. In 18th century England and America, there were Queen Anne, Chippendale, and Heppelwhite, Followed by Sheraton, Empire, and Victorian in the 19th century. In France, there were the various Louis designs and the Directoire period, but in the 1880s, when the furniture from an earlier period once again became fashionable for a combination of re- reasons rooted in culture, nostalgia, and even technology, new designs took a back seat to the proliferation of revised 18th and early. 19th-century styles. So as one century drew to a close and another began, the mainstream of taste was for quite conservative styles. And by the years 1910 through 19, decorating books and home decorating magazines instructed the public to fill their homes with copies of earlier-style furniture and fabrics, rugs, paintings, and accessories, in short, the decorating books and magazines provided the standard every homemaker aspired to achieve, and that standard imitated the styles of our ancestors. But to reinforce the importance of traditional values, the same people who were now able to have their own homes and tastefully furnish them fervently believed That the hope for future american generations was rooted in proper surroundings no one expressed this idea more strongly than frank parsons in his 1916 book interior decoration what then can be more important than the house especially its interior it it is not here that the child first sees colors hears sounds touches textures is this not the place where first impressions are received. These impressions should be of the quality one that would have the young mind make permanent as standards for future judgment. They will represent what the owner of the house regards as good taste in the gratification of his desires. As the aesthetic sense quickens, the taste for greater subtlety grows, and a changed environment is the result. While optimistic Americans dreamed these uplifting thoughts and inspired to a cultural idea that would mold future generations and preserve our important heritage. In Europe, foreign powers threaten world peace. World War I brought a temporary hiatus to the development in the furniture industry in America. Factories have been turning out chairs and dressing tables were suddenly turned into manufacturing plants for airplanes, tanks, and gun parts. There was little time to be concerned with the luxuries like furniture, like making a home. But if the carving and shaping and fret-cutting machines stopped for the war, once peace was declared, the usual post-war boom brought unequaled prosperity to both the American population and the furniture companies. The furniture industry began again with renewed energy and verve and with the advantages of the new technology that had rapidly accelerated during the war years. Just as technology resulting from the Civil War turned a predominantly cottage industry into the furniture factory industry, so developing technology after World War I captivated the furniture industry forward. Furniture of every quality, style, and description could now be churned out to furnish the tract houses that were being constructed at a record rate in every suburban area. Returning, American troops brought with them memories of the sophisticated and elegant French furniture they had seen firsthand. Perhaps a popular song of the era is said best when it asked, How are you going to keep them down on the farm? Since you've been in Paris, the furniture industry quickly caught on, and by the 1920s, the Parisian style became the civilized taste of the world. At the same time, however, American patriotism and the passion for traditional American values was growing even stronger. The 18th and early 19th century American furniture styles were much more popular than ever. From the post-war climate emerged the great colonial revival era in the United States, a mere stylistic period whose influence eventually proved to be as important as any in our cultural history. During these years, Williamsburg was restored to colonial Williamsburg. The American wing at New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art was opened, and the furniture companies did not what the people wanted. They did exactly what they wanted. They made reproduction furniture in every style that Americans had enjoyed in their homes from the early 17th right up until the 1870s when our story as a country began. So think about it. Many new furniture styles evolved through the ages. Queen Anne, Heppelwhite, Louis 16th styles, that embraced a whole vocabulary of design elements, like cabriole legs and inlay, and from which every furniture form, chairs, tables, and so on, were fashioned. But as the 19th century ended, the coming in of sweeping new styles slowly died out. The last, last large innovative furniture styles to gain widespread acceptance and to greatly impact American home decor were Eastlake, Mission, and the Golden Oak periods. From the numerous styles born of the 20th century, only a few individual pieces have weathered the test of time, the Winds of Chains, the Parsons Table, the Barcelona Chair, the occasional Gilbert Rodale piece designed for the Herman Miller Company, and Charles Eames Chair. So whatever happened, we must ask ourselves to, for instance, Danish modern and the Mediterranean styles. Even in the 1990s, water beds are made to look like colonial tester beds. And the entertainment centers that house high-tech TVs, VCRs, and CD players are made to look like Georgian-style cabinets. In truth, in the future, when repeat people refer to the American 20th century furniture, They will not be alluding to one style, but rather to furniture that dominated the entire century. American-made reproduction furniture. Its time had come. Antique dealers and decorators and this podcaster have for a long time been looking for a way to refer to American reproduction furniture, other than calling it American reproduction furniture. Many times I've called it high-end copies. Of course, each style can be called by a specific name. Queen Anne style, federal style, and so on. But a general all-inclusive name for American reproduction furniture as a category is quite hard to come up with. Over the years, one term that has stuck, colonial revival, but what, pray tell, is that? Today the term conjures up the furniture brought to outfit the architectural rage of the 1920s the colonial revival home as we think of it a federal style sofa flanked by a couple of martha washington style wing chairs with a queen anne style tea table perched in front of the grouping but when reading the the typical 1920s or 1930s book on furniture and interior design one quickly learns that during that time, the style of furniture they called colonial or colonial revival was often empire-style furniture. Everyone knows that American empire furniture was the furniture that made the federal and Victorian periods, 1820 to 1850. So why would anyone call empire furniture colonial furniture? Ask the casual person what furniture styles should be classified as colonial. Assuming you mean that the term refers to America's 17th and 18th century colonial, pre-revolutionary, or early settlement style days. And they will reply Jacobin, William and Mary, maybe even Pilgrim or Baroque, plus Queen Anne and Chippendale. Ampere furniture didn't come along until 40 or 50 years after the 200 plus year period of colonization had ended. By now you realize that colonial or colonial revival can mean anything. In fact, to quote from a book published in 1907, The Quest of the Colonial, the term colonial is attached to all the furniture of the early times and the early shapes. It has come to be generally employed and is a term in itself so suggestive and so sonorous that it should be individualist, Indeed, to strive to limit its use with chilly liberalness. After reading the last statement, one could try to apply a literal interpretation to colonial revival, couldn't they? I think think you could. But I had to try to explain the broad use, or should I say misuse, of the phrase. So as this podcast explained... Reproduction furniture in the United States really got off the ground around 1910. Nevertheless, furniture, in a variety of styles, was coming off furniture factory assembly lines before then. Faithful reproductions of 18th century furniture were being made in the 1880s. In Clarence Cook's The House Beautiful, a Chippendale corner chair called an as you like a chair, um, can be seen in his book. So, you must remember that as all these pieces that came for overseas from England and France had to be overhauled before they had been many weeks in this country, so a lot of sample furniture came over, and the American craftsmen, the American industries reworked it. So what better evidence could there be that copies of European as well as American period antiques had already found a place in the American home? By 1915, bookcases were filled to overflowing with all manner of books on antique furniture. The Colonial Furniture of New England by Irving Whitehall Lyons was published in 1891. The Quest of the Colonial by Robert and Elizabeth Shockton was published in 1907. The Book of Decorative Furniture by Edwin Foley appeared in 1911, and Colonial Furniture in America by Luke Vincent Lockwood's two-volume history was published in 1913. Magazines were following suit. Good Furniture, the Magazine of Good Taste, published by Dean Hicks Company of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and filled with adventurous advertisements of furniture made in America after the 18th and early 19th century styles premiered in 1910. Reproductions were so much on everyone's mind that in December 1915, Arts and Decoration magazine featured an article on distinguishing distinguishing between, believe it or not, between good and bad reproductions. So by the years 1910 to 1919, the most popular furniture in America was by far factory-made, assembly-line-produced, recreations of period furniture from Elizabethan times through the Empire era. So if you take the definition of circa and plop it down, say plop 1910 down after it, you'll find that the 30-year span covered therein. 1895 to 1925 reaches back into the early years of colonial American reproduction furniture on the one side and forward into the glory years on the other. Though the reproduction furniture continues to be made the staple of America's furniture industry, even in the years of the 1990s, the 1910 to 1919 was surely the pivotal years that made the look, the look and the colonial revival furniture that shaped the look embraced 300 years of furniture styles from, say, the 1550s to the 1850s. So we're going to follow out back out of this uh, podcast and we're just going to talk about if you had all the money at this time period we're talking about, 1910, 1919, what could money buy? So let's talk about a little story here. So when the Goodyear Tire and rubber baron Frank Selberling and his wife Gertrude were furnishing Stan Hewitt their grand Tudor-style home in Akron, Ohio in the years 1910 to 1919. They could have bought wonderful period antiques for a song. Instead, they bought expensive, custom-made American reproductions in a variety of styles. Today, when people seem willing to spend almost any sum of money on period antiques that speak of taste, longing for quality, and even potential investment. Why, I wonder, why would the Sullenbergs, along with the Raydonesses, the American tobacco money, the McFadden's oil money, and untold numbers of other fabulously wealthy icons choose reproductions for their American manor homes? The answer lies in deep-seated pride. During the early years of the 20th century, the new technology responsible for mass-produced reproductions of furniture of the old times was a source of national pride. Nationally, the newly rich, whose money was rolling off the assembly lines of the Industrial Revolution, wanted the very finest new products to display in their homes, not old stuff. True, the Rockefellers, Garvins, Fords, and Flints were busy collecting the old stuff, the classic stuff, the stuff that's still worth a ton of money today. And they were raping everything from entire towns and villages to pewter mugs and silver parringers. But not everyone had the inclination to spend the time or acquire the knowledge necessary to become an antiques collector, connoisseur, or historic preservationer. Anyway, some Americans under the spell of the European opulence would hardly be satisfied with the comparatively simple lines of 18th century American antiques, even if they were our native crafts. But combine traditional 18th century styles with an updated 20th century dressing up and a touch of English or continental styling And you just have the right look for their European-stylized, influenced homes. That's what the Soberlings in New York City decorator Hugo F. Huber thought when he commissioned the David Zork Company, a Chicago shop that offered interior decorator service, custom-designed and made furniture, plus, plus antiques. We'll throw those in to create wonderful American-made reproductions for this 18th-century Tudor home. So it was a mix of old and new, actually. So records show that for the solarium, Zork provided two marble-top pier tables, one fall-front ladies' desk, a caned armchair, a cane settee, a pie crust tilt-top tea table, a red Chinese Chippendale hanging wall cabinet, two Chippendale armchairs, and a pair of ottomans. A Chinese Chippendale armchair and love seat, a tall case mahogany clock with white painted dial, plus a fire screen, book, stand, and even a wastebasket. So look at these stylish and superior superior quality reproduction pieces today. Is it little wonder that the Silverlings had great reason to take pride in these pieces that touted the motto made? or even handmade in the USA. So that uh, ends part five of our um, episodes in reproduction furniture. And if you want to see myself, Greg Perry, um, live, you can find us at the Historic Preservationist, all one word, lowercase, on Instagram, same on uh, our YouTube channel, and on IGTV. Greg Perry, The Historic Preservationist, signing out. Thanks, everyone, for listening.